and you, you can sue them. <laughs> yeah, not yet. Um, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't I, recommend it. But <laughs> no, yeah, startup takes on the bed. Hello, pirates! Welcome back. My name is Lucas Finko, and I'm Ravi Mickelson. And today, this week of April fifteenth. We are the Pirates of Clean Tech. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love it. That's awesome, Ravi. Thanks. Thanks for coming on the show, Ravi. Um, we're excited to have you. You're a co-founder of an interesting new startup in the clean finance space called Atmos. So I'm wondering if you could uh, start out talking about Atmos. What is it and uh, what do you do? Sure thing. Uh, full name is Atmos Financial uh, because there are many companies named Atmos, including a Dolby speaker set. So if you just search for Atmos, we're not big enough yet to 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 come up there. So you need to search for Atmos Financial. Um, and as you mentioned, so we are a banking startup um, to democratize climate action and to be wholly focused um, on funding the clean energy transition and equitable clean energy transition. Uh, because to date, the banks haven't really put their might, their our deposits to use in funding this transition. And this is the cheapest capital essentially on the planet. And it, it needs to be brought to bear uh, on this on this issue. So that's what we're we're looking to do. And we, we just crossed three months in market uh, a couple of days ago. Oh, cool. So we're always looking for ways that individuals can actually do something about climate change. So is this, is this something I can get involved in? Yes. And, and it's one of the reasons why we did it and why we use the word democratize climate action, because so many people think, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not a material scientist. I'm not going to come up with a new solar panel or, right. or, you know, I don't install wind turbines. What can I do? And it's like, well, do you have a bank account? It's like, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> well, if you move your money out of Chase or Wells Fargo or Bank of America or a city, the top four largest banks in America, which also happen to be the four largest funders of fossil fuel extraction in the world, mm. that will help. Um, if you live in an apartment and your roof is your upstairs neighbor's floor that you can't put solar panels on, like, again, you can move your money and we can use that money to fund solar on somebody else's roof, perhaps on the roof of your own building. Um, so this is something that everyone who has a bank account can do. And we launched with a savings account, which pays 10x the national average. So it's, it's not like you're suffering or have to sacrifice to switch your money. Um, in fact, you don't even have to switch. It's not like you have to close down your existing account. You can come to Atmos open a new account with us, move over some of your money and every dollar that gets deposited, we're going to make use of to fund right now clean energy. Um, <clears throat> first, it's going through partner banks to finance utility scale solar. And then this summer, uh, we're actually going to start our own lending program uh, and that will be for residential solar. And so our goal there is to make it more affordable and accessible for all Americans. Um, because right now, it's really limited to higher income and higher credit score homeowners. Right. Okay, so interesting. So I can open a savings account at 
Atmos is what is it? Joinatmos.com. And then you'll use the deposits from customers to fund clean energy projects, right? Yes. And how we fund them is, is another question we get is, well, you know, if I invest into a solar project directly, I can earn five or 8% and you're paying half a percent. Why would I do that? Is that if you invest directly into a solar project, you can't take that money and go and buy milk with it. Ours, we offer FDIC insured, fully liquid bank accounts. Hmm. So it's really store your money with us when you don't need it or as you wish it to grow in the savings account. And we'll be able to leverage it still, but it's still 100% yours. You have full access to it. Right. Okay. Well, just like a normal bank, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's three minutes to sign up, connect to an external account, your Chase, Wells Fargo, et cetera, move over some money. And while it sits with us, we help to stop climate change. Oh, cool. Cool. Three minutes. Very interesting. So- a lot of our listeners, you know, want to get involved in in clean tech and clean clean finance, uh, but they don't know how. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you got here. Like, what was your kind of career evolution to to become a co-founder? Yeah, and for me, like I, I've been on this, I've been in climate and clean energy for 21 years. Come this August, so this has really been. It, it is my life's mission. Um, and I had a moment of epiphany at high, uh, university orientation uh, where this woman was talking about this research program. And she said, oh, you right away, you'll do graduate level research into water quality testing or eco-friendly materials or renewable energy or something, something, something. Because when she said renewable energy, I couldn't hear anything else. Like the room got dark. There was a spotlight on her. There was heat in my chest. And then this booming voice in my head that said, this is your mission in life. It's to help the world transition off of fossil fuels. And so pretty much since that day, I have been looking for you know, what I call my Archimedes lever. Um, Archimedes, you know, one of the first tools we learn about in engineering, Archimedes famously says, you know, give me a lever long enough right. and firm ground to stand upon and I can move the world. Right. And so it's like, how can I move the world on to move off of fossil fuels? And first, as, a, as an engineer, as a budding engineer, I said, oh, I will develop the new solar cell. I will develop hydrogen fuel cells. I will develop this energy generation technology um, and had some interesting, you know, scientific success with some of the different products, uh, but market timing, different things, you know, never really like blossomed into a, a big commercial success. Uh, and then about five, six years ago, I uh, came to the conclusion that it was capital deployment that was my Archimedes lever. Like this is um, yeah, the, the old saying, money makes the world go round. And it was really one of the main things that brought the cost of solar down by 90% over this last decade was the business model innovations of the no money down uh, lease PPA um, and, and other f- financing innovation um, that allowed us to deploy so much. And with each doubling, we're seeing roughly a, a 20 to 36% cost decrease in, 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 in installation. 
uh, depending on sort of what component or the overall system you're looking at. So I was like, okay, I want to do this. And also at the same time, I want to help other entrepreneurs, other technologies get to market faster. So I've been running a network out here in San Francisco called Climate Link. Okay. Uh, we hold events uh, to showcase new startups. We make connections between startups and appropriate sources of capital because it's not always a venture investor. Sometimes it's a, uh, a philanthropist or a government agency uh, to, to match this, the stage and market uh, for that technology and entrepreneur. Um, and sort of specifically how Atmos got started. So as I was working to deploy capital and developed through Department of Energy program, this loan model to bring, um, to move residential solar from a random knock at your door, as has been done, like into the mortgage purchase event. So let's put solar directly into the mortgage, brings down the cost. Psychologically, it overcomes the barrier of spending nothing on, on your energy to now all of a sudden you're, you're borrowing half a million dollars or more and now we're going to bump it up by $30,000. Um, so that's sort of like how it came to be. And then, you know, there was a downturn in the market uh, that put that idea on the shelf. But then when the IPCC, so now we're talking October 2018, the IPCC comes out with this report, their special report on one and a half degrees. They say, we need to spend trillions of dollars every year on this transition if we're going to have a greater than 50-50 shot on staying below, you know, this temperature rise. And I was like, okay, well, who's got that much money? Because I don't. Uh, it's like, well, the U.S. government does, the Chinese government, the EU, and then the banks. Like, mm -hmm. they're the ones that have this much money to deploy on a regular basis. It's like, okay, can't start a country and tax enough people, but can I start a bank? Um, I was like, well... I don't know how to start a bank. I've never done that. Let's see if somebody else doing this. No. Okay. I'm going to start a bank. So as I'm <laughs> thinking about this, I go to this, you know, it's like, I'm going to start a bank. Next question is, how do you start a bank? Like, <laughs> you know, do what any good engineer would do, go to the source and read the technical documentation. And so I went to the, the OCC, the office of the comptroller of currency, part of the department yeah. of treasury. Yeah. And they basically have the Cliff Notes version, which is about 600 pages or so, like how to start a <laughs> bank. Uh, so I read that plus a few others. Uh, and I was like, okay, I've got a good idea. And it's going to require a ton of money, at, like more money than most startups raise. And also they want bankers to start banks. They don't want random engineers and entrepreneurs to start banks, right. which makes sense. So as I'm thinking about this, and it's like, how do you do it from like a fintech perspective? Uh, I'm at an event um, on regenerative agriculture <clears throat> and um, this man comes in and sits down next to me. Turns out the seat next to me was the last one available um, and he was late. And, and so, you know, at the break, we're introducing ourselves and he happens to be a banker. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Pete Helwig, who's my co-founder, he was at the time he worked for new resource bank, which was bought by amalgamated bank. Uh, new resource bank was like the sustainability bank in America. 
Um, Amalgamated Bank is a social and labor union focused bank. It was started out of a labor union in New York. So Amalgamated bought New Resource Bank to sort of bring sustainability like into, into their brand. They wanted to start getting into financing renewable energy and such. Um, it didn't happen sort of as quickly as, as Pete wanted to see. So he was in the process of transitioning out of that bank. I was like, I'm trying to start a bank. And he's like, hey, I'm at a bank, leaving this bank. And I've been thinking about how do I start a bank? If Patagonia were to start a bank, what would that bank look like? So that's where <laughs> it's like he was coming from. And so in terms of like, how do you become a, how did we become co-founders? Literally, it was the only seat left in the auditorium <laughs> was that it came to be. Um, and so, and it just happened that he was in the process of leaving his company and I was getting things going with this. So we talked for a bit um, and then he joined me full time uh, and it just sort of decent idea. Now I've got somebody who's worked at a bank joining me. Now the investor's like, okay, it sounds like this might work, but we're still not sure yet. And then we got to present at a conference. The There was a a man in the audience who's like, oh, this is a good idea. And I'm like, thanks, random person. He's like, yeah, we think so too. Turns out he ran one of the top 20 banks in the world. Uh, so he actually knew what he was talking about. Um, so Andrew Thorburn, uh, so he took a liking to us and he's Australian. And we flew to Australia in January of 2020, right at the height of their fire season. Um to meet with him and he decided to come on board as our board chair and first investor. And thankfully he did because that was right before the start of the COVID pandemic. Um, And so if we hadn't gone down at that moment, this probably wouldn't have happened. Like Atmos would not be here. Hmm. So it's um, a lot of these, these moments have lined up and it's like, we sort of captured on these moments of opportunity. And so it's, Sometimes it's, you know, you can call it luck, but it's also it's sort of take, it's good fortune in that we were open to these opportunities and we seized upon them. So if there's somebody who's watching this, who's like, I'd like to start something, you know, mm-hmm. open yourself up to the possibility. Um, be very, become comfortable with discomfort um, because you know, most likely you're not going to get paid for a while. You have to like be comfortable with that and be, you know, um, be comfortable with rejection. Uh, I probably have a list of over 200 investors who said no, like for this one project going back you know, the 20 years of, of yeah. trying different things, it's probably been told no a thousand times if I add them all up. There's so many ways to work in this space. Um, and so I'd say there's the process of, of ikigai. Um, have you heard this term? No. Uh, so it's a, it's a Japanese term for basically what you should be doing. Um, so it's like, what does the world need? What are you good at? What can you be paid for? Um, it's like, what gives you joy? And then I think there's one other thing. It's sort of this Venn diagram mm-hmm. of these five different circles. Um, and then... Um, I know um, Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, one of the, the founders of the All We Can Save project and ocean scientist there in New York City, 
she explains it a little bit more simply with three circles. Basically, what you love, what you're good at, and what the world needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of at the center of that is what you should be doing because there's so much that we can do and climate change touches on everything. So <clears throat> if you're a good communicator and you like to host parties, well, you can bring people together. One of the most important things we can do is talk about climate change. So bring people together and talk about how climate change is affecting your circle. You can do this. If you're a lawyer, you can work on various uh, legal actions to defend the planet. Um, We'll be talking about a a legal action in in our news articles (laughs) at the end. Um, So there's so many different ways to, to, to get involved. And it doesn't require you to be a scientist or even an entrepreneur. You can do things within your own company. You can do things as right. a teacher, as a parent, as a student, as a child. There are things that we can all do. Yeah. That's awesome. That's great. Those are some great stories, uh, especially about entrepreneurship and about how, yeah, sometimes you just have to stick your neck out, keep trying, keep talking to people right and keep pushing until until something lands so that's really valuable um advice how did you get into this lucas i haven't on all the episodes i've listened i don't really don't think i've heard your origin story oh yeah i mean that's that's a really good point um i i did work for a utility for many years on on clean energy and uh i was a manager of analytics for a major utility and so i was involved in a lot of uh clean energy analysis and and you know forecasting and planning and working with the regulators and working with the engineers and so i got kind of a it's kind of an insular world so you know not a lot of people know how utilities work unless you work for a utility Mm -hmm. right because it's it's kind of sealed off to the outside you know there's very few uh other people that know besides like utility policy lawyers so when you try and go make changes to the utility I think a lot of people get confused and don't know what's going on because nobody outside the utility knows what's going on in there. Right. Um, and so that's kind of why uh, I'm trying to get more active. You know, I teach a class on energy analytics and I have this podcast now uh, just trying to get people up to speed and kind of explain why things happen the way they do with the utility um, and how we can work with that and how we can work together with them and, you know, help this energy transition along. I th- think they're going to have to be very important so we can't just ignore them we can't try and get rid of them um you know you can say oh Elon Musk is going to make them irrelevant but you know that that that's not really true right they you still have to plug into the grid so um net metering is going to be a huge issue and we need to understand why and how it works and what the what the issues are so yeah that's kind of my background and why I'm in this yeah great well thank you yeah um so i i just have one last question so that was great um about your career and your background um i was wondering you know we talk a lot about price on the show and the price of solar and the price of storage and you know impacts on markets we talk a lot about and so i'm wondering like there's already a lot of kind of financial incentives out there for clean energy, right? Like solar incentives and storage incentives. And then you have tax credits and you have, you know, you have incentive programs and you have green banks. 
Um, you know, and we're starting to get to a point where clean energy is cheaper, like at least, you know, maybe wind and solar is cheaper, storage, we're still working there. So how does your kind of bank fit into this giant mess of financial incentives and, and other processes? Yeah. I mean, so for us, we'll be, especially to start, we'll be sort of on the, the consumer residential side of deploying capital. And so if you live in a single family home and you've got a, a roof and you want to put solar on it and you want to get the fossil gas appliances out and switch for electric and induction stove and heat pumps and so forth, uh, we will offer you a loan um, at a better price and we'll show you what the financial outcome and, and environmental outcome of that will be. Um, and we will show you some of the different incentives that you get access to, um, okay. maybe even help you there. And I think, you know, for, for us, we, we want to make it, we want everyone to be able to participate. So how do we expand access? Um, so one critique of the clean energy transition to date has been that the benefits have concentrated to the wealthy. Um, the tax credits, mm. the greater your tax liability, the greater credit you have access to. Mm-hmm. And so low income, you know, so low income uh, homeowners, they won't have the same level of liability. So they don't get the same level of support um, for their solar system. Um, and so I think both us as an entity and, and as an industry, I think we can, we can also lobby for changes to how we offer incentives. And there's talk now of changing like the ITC, the investment tax credit on this towards a straight cash distribution so that it would be more equal. And those without the tax liability would also be able to participate um, and see these benefits. And I think also, you know, as a financial entity, as a banking entity, we can help hold people's money and just say, hey, this is also benefiting this transition. Mm. Um, So, yeah, there's a lot of different ways and we're still figuring out. Uh, We're still pretty new, but um, our primary path will be deployment of capital. Very cool. Yeah, well, we definitely need it. And we'll talk a little bit more about capital being deployed uh, in a little bit when we get to our articles. Um, Thanks so much, Robbie. Uh, Where where can we find Atmos again? How do we find you? Yeah, if you would like to join us on this journey, you can go to joinatmos.com. And that is A-T-M-O-S, like the atmosphere, the protective layer of gases that cover the planet. (laughs) <laughs> keep us all alive yeah cool. well, th- thanks lucas yeah thanks robbie all right robbie let's move on to some recent news articles that uh, we want to discuss do you want to do you want to go first why don't you go first sure um since we're talking financing uh there was a great article in bloomberg recently about uh residential pace and one of the potential downsides of of pace or rather how it's been exploited um, by bad actors mm-hmm. and beautiful idea um, pace was when it was created and, and the inventor Cisco DeVries in the game, like he's, he's all about inclusion and wanted to help more people go solar, but uh, it's really been taken advantage of to 
lock people, many on fixed incomes, uh, into these predatory loans and liens on their homes. I've, I've haven't been a huge fan of it just because of the added complexity, but in commercials, like it's in three states and not in California, Missouri, and Florida. So it's not widespread across the U S. Um, and it's not even in every County in those three States, but, uh, and then in, in commercial pace, there's in 22 or 26 States now. And that I think is amazing. I think we should get rid of residential pace. Um, but, uh, we should push more into commercial pace. Well, just, just so people know what is pace again, it is property assessed clean energy. So essentially it's a tax assessment put onto the property and often in, so it's, you pay it through your tax bill. Uh, so it's sort of sold as this magic fairy dust of no money down and you don't have to have any income because it's just like, have you been paying your mortgage? And then you qualify for it. In in California, they they did put in a an ability to repay the loan um, as a stipulation. So that's 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 put in consumer protection. And mm-hmm. if Florida and Missouri also put those in, the volume will go down um, because it will protect more consumers. Right. Okay. Um, so so I get a loan for solar panels on my roof. And then I don't pay a loan. It goes on my property taxes. I just get a bigger property tax bill, right? Right. Okay. Interesting. And so these, um, so I can imagine once, you know, once enough people see how this works, you're going to have some scam artists or some people causing problems, right? And that's what this is about. Yeah. And it's, and it's the need. I mean, it puts a black eye on the, the entire industry and people say, oh, I don't want to go solar because solar is a scam. Oh, the entire, you know, paint everyone with the same brush. And really this, so this idea was, was, was developed 20 years ago when solar was 10 X the cost or more of what it is now. Mm. And so now it's, so you can actually get a unsecured consumer loan for less expensive than you can get a PACE loan. Hmm. Um, and in a few more years, it's like as we're moving forward and like you can actually just finance it with your mortgage, then it's even better. Like right. um, Pace was a great idea. It's expensive capital. Like the, in addition to sort of the predation by these bad actors, it's just more expensive capital. It is not financially a good deal for most homeowners. Yeah, I mean, I could see people throwing some huge interest rate on here, and then you're stuck with it. You're locked in, right? Because it's through your property taxes. Yeah, then, if you're you're paying an eight to twelve percent loan over twenty years, <laughs> on, and you have maybe like a two or three percent mortgage, right. like it doesn't it doesn't make sense. Right. And then if you default on that, it's your property taxes. Right, so you can you, in the foreclosure and oh. yeah, people have lost their homes and oh. like it is, and 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 it's the the people who can least afford to do so are the ones who are most at risk. Right, like this gentleman here. Yeah, I believe he's a you know he's a retiree, he's a veteran, yeah, right. retired postal worker. So he's on a fixed income, and ten ten thousand dollars added to his annual property tax bill. Yeah. On a 1500 square foot home. That's crazy. Yeah. And, and, and so people are, you know, it's, 
taken out a $15,000 loan or $10,000 loan and paying $35,000 total, like it's egregious. Um, And there should be a lot of like hidden arbitration and anti-consumer protection clauses put in there. So it's, so fix it or get rid of it. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think, you know, overall we can just get rid of it because it's not needed. It's added complexity at its best. Like, and then it's, it's predatory at its worst. Rates eight to twelve percent. Oh my god. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <clears throat> we know all about residential pace now. Okay. We'll yeah. we'll move on, right? Got through it without cursing. <laughs> this is another really interesting one. Um, so again, sort of sticking with the banks and finance, is Client Earth is nonprofit. They're suing um the European Central Bank, ECB, about um Essentially, um, so the central banks will often buy corporate bonds to move things forward in different projects. And they have a, um, a history of buying these infrastructure bonds for oil and gas companies, for fossil fuel. And what Client Earth is saying is that the ECB has a duty um, to protect the citizens of Europe and buy buying these bonds and providing cheap capital to fossil for fossil fuel extraction they're actually breaking they're actually failing in their duty and they have um one of the the questions is sort of to the european supreme court is like whether or not these are actually like valid or invalid purchases and so if and I think this is going to be the trend. We see similar things here in the U.S., not sort of on the the, the litigation side just yet, but we see um, who is it the, um, the 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 commodities um, financial. Com- it was a, it was basically the regulatory body for like yeah, the commodities in exchange. Yeah, they said climate change is a direct risk to the financial sector. The Treasury Department now is taking is looking at climate change and the risks of climate. Uh, so it, it's not just going to be pressure from those all of us consumers for banks to move and for companies. We're going to start seeing it from the regulatory side as well. That uh, climate risk is financial risk. Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, said that ex- exact statement, and now we're going to see the regulators start requiring this. The CFO is going to have to start including this in their financial statements. It's like if you are measuring risk and not including climate risk, you have an incomplete risk calculation. Hmm. Interesting, because the Federal Reserve is also buying corporate bonds now, correct? They buy, they uh, buy like so. funds. They don't buy them directly. So it's yeah, I'm not 100 percent certain, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, yeah. Or are they just buying agency and treasures? I can't remember. But I wonder if they also have a similar statement and you, you could sue them. <laughs> yeah, not yet. Um, <laughs> but I, I would I, recommend it. But <laughs> no, yeah. Startup takes on the Fed. Um, I, I, I think it would be the Environmental Defense Fund or NRDC, Look, the correct. National Resource yeah, Defense yeah. Council, one of them that would do so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't mean you specifically, but yeah, in general. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. It's good to see 
again, uh, this comes back to what we've been saying, and we're going to say again a couple times here that you know you, you can't just come up with a target for 2050 and go back to work um, like nothing happened. You you have to start making changes. And the the ironic thing is the Rockefeller Foundation already divested, you know, from from carbon investments. So. Uh, yeah, we have to start doing it. We can't just make a press release. Um, we have to make the changes. Yeah. And, and on those divestment uh, claims, those big funds and foundations and um, endowments, they're like, oh, we're fully divested. Well, from your public equities and perhaps private equity and, they, and, and even the, the debt that you hold, but the cash, most of these big funds have one to five percent cash uh, and total assets, uh, and they have so much cash, it's not going to be at a local community bank. It's not going to be at a credit union. Right. It's going to be at one of the big banks, and that money is going to be leveraged to fund fossil fuel extraction. So until they move the money out of those big banks, or they can ring fence it so that it isn't used, they're not fully divested. Well, they should move them into Atmos, right? I mean. <laughs> We will take it. I, I will work day and night to figure out how to make that happen. There you go. That's a that's a good conundrum. Yeah. Um, okay, moving on. Oh, Canary Media. Look at this. This is our new our new uh, green tech. Well, sorry, I'm not supposed to say that. Our new uh, <laughs> clean energy yeah, well, source. Yeah, I mean, well, you can say that for those who are watching slash listening that uh, don't know. Uh, Green Tech Media, the, the news article that was purchased by Wood McKenzie um, many years ago, uh, was just shut down by Wood McKenzie. And many of the editors and writers from Green Tech Media um, left and they formed a new not for profit media company uh, under the Rocky Mountain Institute. And they've, and it's named Canary Media. To the canary in the coal mine they're the ones that <laughs> yep. they're sounding the warning um which I, I absolutely love and so this uh, amazing writing and so this um piece is actually by a, a guest writer justin guai who's a director at the sunrise project it's you know corporate net zero climate goals 2030 game changers or 2050 greenwash what we see out of about 200 very large corporations uh, zero of them have actually done meaningful 2021 actions. <laughs> so when your homework is due two weeks out, you do it on day 13. Um, and that's what, that's what we're seeing a lot on these, these net zero targets. Uh, other than, you know, so it's the, they're, they're not taking action. They're, they're not allocating capital. And that's where you see where the rubber meets the road. Um, companies like Google, like Microsoft that are working, especially Google, who's actually working towards. So I think it was in 2017, they reached 100% clean energy uh, consumption on an annual basis. So they use you know, 100 units of, of energy. They consumed or they purchased 100 units of clean energy. And what they've been doing since then is moving to 24-7. Uh, clean energy. So they're matching up electron for electron. Right. Um, and so they're, they're a really good sort of corporate actor to, to uh, emulate. They had the, they were the first to sort of 
um, this the single largest electric vehicle charging station, like in their parking lots, uh, their main campus. Hmm. Um, they got solar panels everywhere. Like mm-hmm. when you go into the parking lot, the, the carports are are solar panels, mm-hmm. so you can get a little bit of shade in a lot of spots. That's really good. Here you see a lot of like commitments. Um, you have to be watching this to to see. Otherwise, you just hear me saying this. <laughs> yep. um, but there's a chart with uh, three different colors of green, orange, red, uh, and it's mostly red, especially on the capital allocation um, <laughs> alignment. So it's. it's they're just not doing it. Um, and, and so we need to hold them accountable, whether if you're a shareholder, if you're an employee, uh, we've seen that that, that is effective. Um, the employees at Amazon have, have really gathered together to push the company on moving, moving on, their, on their climate targets and setting and, and allocating capital. So we do have power if we work together. We saw something similar in the last episode for, for utilities. Utilities are in the same boat with this, right? As far as, you know, having a medium-term target and, and having current capital allocation alignment. I mean, this is just the saddest thing I've ever seen. How, how yeah. can you have an agreement for 2050 or 20, you know, and everybody is installing long-lived assets, every business. Yeah. So you can't tell me that you're committed to that target if you're not putting capital there. So... Yeah. yeah. And what I don't get about, you know, the utilities is there's smart people that run these and the writing is on the wall that the transition is happening right. and you have this guaranteed eight, 10% return on your, your capital deployed, you know, for your installations, you could finance solar on every, you, you know, the customers, you, send them emails and mailings every single month. Say, hey, let's put solar on your roof. Let's change out that furnace for a heat pump. Let's put a charging station and a charger in your garage. It's like, oh, and you know what? We're just going to do do this right on, on your bill. Yeah. You don't have to do nothing. You just sit there. You have a healthier, safer, more performant home. And now you're ready for the future. Wow, that's awesome. And in many cases, it will be a you know, net zero change or slight savings to the customer, huge savings to the, <clears throat> to, to the utility because now they've just put controllable loads into all of those buildings. And now it's like, oh, you've got generating assets throughout your territory. You have controllable loads throughout your territory. You're like, hey, all of a sudden, 10,000 EVs get plugged in. Let's stagger them out by 20 minutes. It all stays within there. Like, yeah, I just don't understand it. (laughs) Well, there's probably about a dozen reasons why that hasn't been done already. Um, Yeah, it's just... It's a very difficult space to work in, right? You have regulators, you have unions, you have very conservative uh, company, right? That doesn't like to see, doesn't like to rock the boat. A lot of these companies have been paying dividends for 40 years. Um, you know, they get a lot of criticisms when the lights go out. Uh, there's just so many reasons why, you know, utilities want dispatchable, reliable pipes and wires and generators. And they're not, you know, they, they don't see a good future for them with 
a lot of solar panels and not enough storage and you can't dispatch solar and it's variable it varies same with wind you know how are they going to manage all that so yeah it, it, was that a dozen that was about a dozen i mean <laughs> you know and then they yeah. go to regulators and regulators say is this the lowest cost option for your customers and i don't know right no the answer's been no so yeah a lot of barriers for why that hasn't happened, right? You're not dealing with a with a company that's kind of in the market like uh, you know most people think it's a regulated monopoly, right? Yeah. Um, so it's very difficult to get any kind of change. Uh, it takes years. Yeah. yeah. Very tough. Very tough job. Yeah. I don't have the utilities at all. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we jump to the energy one since we're talking about utilities? Oh, you want to do that? <laughs> you want to? Uh, yeah, so this is actually my record, right? This is out of the Energy and Policy Institute. Uh, records reveal Entergy's role in stalling MISO transmission planning. So I had to break this up. This is from Daniel Tate, April 5th. Uh, you know, the Texas freeze kind of highlights the need for transmission to protect consumers and, and increase renewable energy. This is one of my big soapboxes to get on. You know, the more interconnected we are, the more uh, the easier it is to integrate lots of renewables. So the more geographically connected we are, the more stable kind of renewable generation becomes and that, you know, you can move it from where it's generated to where you need it. So, so it's kind of well known that you need a lot of transmission installed in the next 30 years in the US. And it turns out one of the utilities has been actively working against transmission projects. Um, right, so one of the, <laughs> One of the benefits of transmission projects just right now is that you can get cheaper power brought in from somewhere else. Um, you know, this is a big deal. For instance, in New York City, there's not enough transmission lines. So uh, electricity is expensive in the city um, and you can't get cheaper electricity in. So people who own those generators that are running and getting high prices, they don't want to see new transmission lines come in. And so this is what I think um, is Entergy's motivation here. They don't want to see cheaper power coming in and might undermine uh, their operations in areas that are kind of transmission constrained. So I was very disappointed to see this. You know, the the Public Service Commission saying Mississippi was hiring consultants and then Entergy hired the same consultants and we're feeding them the information to give to the Michigan PSC. So this is terrible. This needs to be investigated my opinion, there needs to be, you know, there's a crime here that needs to be prosecuted. So I was very disappointed to see this. Um, and I think there's a sort of, you know, gets tacked onto the, the baker's dozen of reasons why utilities don't <laughs> uh, you know, act. I mean, I, I definitely recommend people read this because it almost sounds like a spy novel. Like, look, they had used a covert agent. I mean, it's just like, it's like yeah. a spy movie. It's weird. Yeah. And it goes into like what we see is a lot of the the astroturfing um, by utility companies. Um, so here in California, Sempra Energy, which is the owner of of SoCal Gas and I think a few others, uh, they have created uh, these like so called uh, you know, grassroots uh, air quotes um, grassroots organizations, and they're really they're consultants and paid actors and so forth. Uh, literally, they do Craigslist ads to, to bring in 
actors uh, that go to <laughs> city planning meetings and so forth and say, oh, I don't want more clean energy. I want more gas. Um, and, <laughs> and the thing is, and it's fine for utility companies to do this, but they're not supposed to use ratepayer funds to do it. Or if they do, they're <laughs> supposed to disclose it. And so what, what Sempra Energy through, through SoCal Gas has been doing um, has basically been trying to screw over the customers here and use their own money. It's like, you have to pay for us to give you, you know, worse service. It's like, um, so, so that's also being investigated. And um, Arizona, the Arizona uh, Public Utility Commission, that similar thing went on there uh, in, um, in, in their fight. Um, and, and that it was actually, I think, just a straight like bribery case of the, the utility commission. Yeah. And in Ohio. Yeah. Ohio as well. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can just add on more states. It's like, on. oh yeah, in this state and in this state. <laughs> yeah. A, I mean, so that they're yeah. like, it, it is a, I think it just sort of goes up like perverse incentives into the system. And that's the incentives aren't aligned. Right. And it's again, right. sort of like going back to like the individual incentives. I think, you know, so the utilities, it is a fact that the utilities have played an amazing and important role in our society for the last hundred and so many years. And what we need to do is now align the incentives for them to continue to operate and grow in this new grid, new society that we want. Correct. I fully agree. (laughs) What else we got? All right, do you want to move on to this one? Oh, yeah, this is a good one. Uh, right. So this is a, a Bloomberg Green article uh, by Ben Elgin, from, also from the 5th, going along with net zero targets and a lot of corporations buy carbon offsets and carbon credits and the Nature Conservancy. Um, and this is sort of goes primarily into the Nature Conservancy's, their carbon credit program, but also talks about the Audubon Society and a few other large nonprofits. Basically, selling off carbon credits to uh, forests and other sort of pristine wildlife that they own and manage, but never plan to develop. And so these carbon credits are essentially supposed to protect land. And if you have no plan of cutting down these trees, those carbon credits are meaningless. And so it's allowing these giant corporations to pollute more and pay to say that they're net zero or they're reducing their emissions without actually reducing any emissions or adding any further emissions reductions. And this is generally a problem with carbon offsets in the carbon credit market is that they're too inexpensive and there's just a lot of too much uh, hogwash in there, (laughs) too much BS. Um, and, And it's... Yeah, get to get to real zero, not net zero. It's like politely, yeah. yeah. So these these corporations, it's like, hey, let's let's transition our building off of fossil fuels. Let's, you know, uh, what was it? It's like Microsoft developed this, you know, video chat platform called Teams, um, but their their salespeople took more flights than. Uh, you know, th- 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 than than the people <laughs> of some countries. It's like, hey, let's let's reduce our emissions to zero, and then yes, we will need some offsets, but we need greater 
verification and we need greater quality offset programs. Yeah, I mean, until these carbon offset or these carbon credits are based on sequestration, to me, they don't really mean anything. They're just an accounting gimmick, right? Yeah. I don't like any of this. Uh, This is why I've been a critic of that net zero because it's just an accounting exercise. It's, It's not doing anything. And, and and a lot like we're seeing this sort of in the in the finance space too of um you know you, using like your your purchases it's like oh you can offset stuff offset the emissions from your purchase and like plant trees well a lot of the tree planting like so this is like conservation of of existing land and then there's tree planting well if you with a, the, a tree planting program in some areas it was cheaper for if farmers or people living near forests to cut down biodiverse forests and just plant monocrop trees. It's like, well, that's mm-hmm. actually worse. So it's, it's what we, um, what we incentivize, what we reward uh, is really important. And I, I think on the, like the, the Audubon societies, uh, you know, Oh, here's one the, like this quote you're on here is Texaco gave you know gave this uh donated a huge tract of land to the nature conservancy um basically for their own tax write-off purposes Mm. and and the nature conservancy has just entered that plot of land which was supposed to be conserved in perpetuity as part of this donation they've just put it up for carbon credits which means that they plan to you know or they're stating that this is at risk of development which then sort of breaks the covenant of the donation. Uh, so there's some, you know, a little bit of a legal and tax discussion that needs to go on there. Um, and the Audubon Society had one where it's this, uh, it's like tract a bayou down in Louisiana or something like that, where all these cypress trees that have been untouched for millennia. And it's like, okay, this is pristine, untouched for, yeah, here's the photo. Yeah, that's it. Um, untouched for a thousand years but all of yeah. a sudden we we're going to cut it down unless you pay us it's like what? <laughs> what are you holding holding these trees hostage <laughs> yeah it's well just like anything it kind of gets perverse the the longer it continues right just like yeah. it's on pace you know yeah I'm, I'm more in favor of it's like okay you want a carbon credit it's like well it's you know $50 a ton to do rooftop solar on a low income person's home, something like that. Cheaper if that donation goes to Grid Alternatives, which is a nonprofit, um, and they their labor is volunteer effort. And so it's like, do that. It's economically beneficial and it's putting more, you know, we're avoiding emissions. A lot of these, these tree based schemes don't really work. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to move on. Yeah. Oh, this is a great one. This study, this, um, this was sort of like in the good news category. Um, so this one is a, a report uh, just from two days ago uh, that from the Lawrence Berkeley Labs um, study that says, basically, we are halfway to um, reaching our zero carbon emission goals. You know, utility states, like we're making a lot better progress than we thought. Um, and I think this is mostly on a, on a, a goal setting process and then like starting the work. We haven't cut our, our emissions you know, half as we need to. So 
we're, we still got a long way to go. And I don't want to say, Hey, we're, we're there. You don't, don't give up or like, don't need to do the, do so much work. I still want to request everyone to do as much as they can swap their internal combustion engine vehicle for an EV. And av- actually that's a big one. Um, so if you're waiting for in two to three years, we should see dozens of new models. Mm-hmm. And if you're waiting for that time, I say lease an EV right now. Um, mm-hmm. If it will, if it will cover 90 plus percent of your daily driving, lease an EV right now. And then when that lease is up, it will go into the secondary market. And so somebody who can't afford to get a brand new EV will be able, should be able to afford that one. So now you're essentially putting two EVs on the market on, onto the roads instead of just one. Oh, yeah. So this is um, I'm, I'm pushing leasing of EVs as a big accelerant right now. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think anybody who owns two cars in their family, uh, one of them should be an EV, right? Um, the other one you can take on long trips. And most people travel what thirty-five miles a day, so you can Less use than, an EV for that. Yeah, and if you if you park like if you if you drive to work and you can park and there's a one hundred and twenty volt outlet there, um, and then you park and then plug in at a hundred and twenty volt outlet at home, that's about one hundred and ten miles a day. Yeah. So if you drive less than one hundred and ten miles a day, you can get by on a hundred and twenty volt outlet at both ends. Yeah, and it's the same behavior that you do with your cell phone, right? You plug it in every day, plug it yep. in at work, same thing. Um, actually, okay, so <laughs> coming back to this, yeah, it is a 52% reduction, but it's against a projection. You know, if you, I was actually reading another article on this today mm. that it's against the EIA's projection, which has notoriously been <laughs> how should yeah. I put it, bad. Um, you know, they make assumptions that like coal is going to continue growing. Uh, and the ITC will expire, you know, every year. Um, And they're always dead wrong. So it's, it's kind of a 52% reduction against almost like a worst case projection, but (laughs) it's still something to celebrate. Look, uh, your total electric bill is down from projection. Uh, Coal and oil is 70% less than projected. Uh, Natural gas is 112% more than uh, in, in 2005. But that's mostly because we turned off coal and we went to natural gas, which cuts your yeah. emissions in half right away. So that was coal. Yeah. I mean, coal is 70% less than projected, which is yeah. pretty amazing. And I think, yeah, I, I think we'll see just about most or all of the, the rest of the coal plants turned off by the end of this decade, if not beforehand. Well, I'd just it's, like to see uh, storage or wind or something put in its place, right? Yeah, yeah, we 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 will. Uh, I think you know. I think a big thing that we need to do is is not turn off our nuclear plants before we can replace those. If we turn them off at all, like all right, we can <laughs> we could have another podcast on that one. <laughs> yeah, ooh, I hit a button. <laughs> oh, that's another big issue. Yeah, um, I'm gonna skip ahead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, this one from RenewEconomy.com.au. This is in Australia. Wow. Um, this was, uh, I have a couple that are a little interesting. This is from James, uh, wow, Farnahu, uh, April 5th. For hydrogen to dominate the low carbon world, batteries must fail. So I wanted to bring this up just to kind of clarify this a little and also kind of give a rebuttal for this um, because I feel like it's, you know, it's a little sensationalism 
is basically all it is to get you to click on their their site. But um, you know, they they do make a good point that uh, kind of batteries are uh, kind of more economic and make more sense as far as storage goes. <clears throat> if you're going to use hydrogen to store energy for the grid, um, the return you know efficiencies aren't aren't really that great, and so their position is that you know battery technology is the most powerful uh solution of the three they give three examples um carbon capture and storage hydrogen and batteries so pretty much all of these are expensive and they're making the argument that that you know on a net return basis batteries are the, the most efficient um you know however i really i really feel that we're not going to be able to build enough batteries uh to to make this work if you look at kind of the resource constraints, because I see a vast amount of storage that needs to come and I just don't see batteries filling that. So at some point you're gonna have a need for a lot of battery storage and not enough batteries. And so that'll drive the price up where, where hydrogen comes in. So I, I think we need a balance of a lot of different technologies. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll naturally find, the market will find the right use cases for them I don't think we should jettison hydrogen just yet. So yeah, a little bit of sensationalism here, I think, uh, on the part of the author. Yeah, I think hydrogen definitely has a place to play. I don't, I don't really see it in light duty vehicles. I think that will maintain lithium ion. Um, we're definitely yeah. seeing hydrogen in already being used in like forklifts and sort of it's all fixed within within it within a. Uh, like warehouse space or, or a, a contained space. So it's easy to just go and refill. Um, so the, the infrastructure is there. Heavy duty vehicles, I think, you know, it works out. I think the author also says that. Long haul aviation, two thirds of aviation emissions are, are short haul, short haul flights. And those could be done either hydrogen or uh, straight battery electric. Uh, we're starting to see some of that. Yeah, I, I, I think there's an opportunity. I, I think it does have more of an uphill climb um, versus there are wires everywhere. So it's easier for batteries to sort of plug in. Yeah. And I think, I think we'll see a lot of different chemistries come into play rather than just sort of the st- same sort of lithium ion chemistry that we've seen for 30 some years. Yeah. Or flow batteries or something. Right. Yeah. Lots of I mean- lithium. They do make this case that the round trip, uh, at least for electricity storage, is is kind of costly and inefficient. You know, this gentleman um, from RMI described it as really dumb. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, if you're using electricity to split water into hydrogen and oxygen, which is like, inc- that's a electro- process of ele- electrolysis is right. incredibly energy intensive. So if you're doing that and then storing the hydrogen and then putting it back through a fuel cell to produce electricity, right. like you lose a lot uh, in the process. But if we have excess capacity and you're using the excess capacity that's at a negative price or effectively zero, uh, that sort of changes the equation a bit. Yeah, but I, I just think that this argument just isn't that that strong for me. Like, combustion turbines aren't hugely efficient, right? They're hugely efficient against theoretical limits, but you still got a lot of heat going out the tailpipe. Um, you know, LNG is hugely inefficient, but we're doing that. It takes a third of the energy in the natural gas to compress it. 
So you lost a third right there. So just because it's inefficient doesn't mean we're not going to do it, right? Right. Yeah. 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 And then it's just sort of the, the, the efficiency. It's like, you have to bring the, the, the cost into it and the use. And it's like, well, at some right. point it makes, it makes sense. Like the efficiency yeah. level is, is still, it's good enough. Like it makes sense. So. Yeah. And some smart entrepreneurs will figure out what, what market it makes sense in. Right. Yeah. All right. So I had to bring this up. This is one of my long standing eeks. Um, this is from Bloomberg green. Thank you. Bloomberg green. Uh, big wind turbines prove no deadlier to wildlife than small units. This is March 31st, going back a little bit by uh, Josh Saul. This has been one of, one of the issues that always kind of is weird to me that the, you know, environmentalists tend to kill these wind farm projects uh, because they claim that, you know, birds will nest right here, you know, on the top of a large wind turbine. And then the babies will walk out and, and run into the blades and so uh, actually the, the offshore wind project in New York, I think it's going over 10 years now, um, based just on environmental concerns, it's been delayed. So it's good to see at least this being studied. This is from the Journal of Applied Ecology. Uh, you can look into this. So the, the point they made was the, the bigger turbines would kill no more wildlife than a smaller one. And so there's no like unique reason to have you know, environmental studies for, for these large wind projects and that we, sh- we should move forward with these. So this is good to see. I hope people take this into account when they're approving these projects. Um, yeah, hopefully we can get more offshore wind installs. Yeah, offshore and onshore. If you have a, a just a bunch of tiny ones, then there's really no open path for the birds. But if you um, replace some of the smaller units and leave... If you're, if you're going to, like here in California, we've got fields of tons of tiny wind turbines that were put in 30 years ago, and you replace, you, you, you take all of them down, but you replace one third of them or one quarter of them with units that are now five, 10 times that size. Now they're more spaced out, there are more pathways, and you're producing more energy. Um, so you can have a, a net decrease in the total number of, of bird strikes. Um, per field. So yeah, I would think offshore too. You'd have less bird strikes. I, I don't know. Yeah, but they hope don't so. An important thing to keep improving upon. Either way. Yeah. Okay, moving on here. This one from Forbes. That's another one of my ongoing themes. <laughs> <laughs> April sixth. Um, oh, what Mackenzie contributed. That's interesting. Why are oil majors investing in offshore wind? So I'm very, very happy to be talking about this. Uh, this is from Valentina Kretschmar, uh, excellent German name from Wood McKenzie. Um, it turns out oil majors are coming into the capital allocation space for clean, clean energy, uh, and they're picking offshore wind. I think uh, there's overlaps here they talk about with, with oil majors' experience, right? Managing large projects. They do a lot of offshore oil and, and gas exploration, so they're already familiar with offshore. There's a great place for them to come in. There's a great graph in here um, showing the amount of investment. It's in the billions of US dollars. And here are the companies that are doing it. You have Equinor, you have Shell, which is Royal Dutch Shell. You have Total, which is uh, Spanish, I believe. Right? French. E&I. Sorry. Total is French. French, sorry. E&I is Spanish. I can't remember. Uh, is that one? I don't know. And British Petroleum has uh, come to the party. 
I think they were doing it a long time ago, but um, they're they're back, and this is just great to see. Very disappointed that I don't see any U.S. oil majors on this chart. And again, I'm going to say it again. Uh, at the Exxon Mobil uh, annual conference, they their capital investment plan is down because they quote can't find any good investments. And, and I mean, uh, they're missing the boat. And so these these oil majors have a future and oil majors that are not investing in, in the future energy transmission are not going to have a future. ENI is Italian. I just looked it up. Yeah, I think it makes sense that oil majors are getting in. I mean, we, we did see this uh, in sort of the mid-aughts of BP rebranding themselves as Beyond Petroleum. Right. Yeah, $100 million marketing campaign, um, beautiful sunflower logo and all this stuff. <laughs> uh, and they were like, we're not oil companies, we're energy companies. Uh, I mean, now I think we're, they're, they're putting real money. I mean, this goes out to 2025, so it's projected uh, expenditures. But I, I think there is a, a difference and they, they too see the writing on the wall. And so they are looking to diversify their assets. These installations make money. So they're in the process of making money and delivering energy. So I think it, it makes sense. Uh, and also from a jobs perspective, a lot of the skills and experience are very transferable from offshore oil to offshore wind and also mm-hmm. onshore oil and gas to geothermal. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of overlap. And I think as we transition further, a lot of these workers will see, um, will see good jobs in the, in the new energy economy. Yeah, I mean, I could even complain that these numbers are low. I mean, they have tens to hundreds of billions of dollars in capital they can deploy. So I'd really like to see that deployed <laughs> in yeah. <clean> energy. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Oh, and I have one more thing here. I have your website up here, joinatmos.com. So if people want to check that out, um, you know, this is something that you can do, you know, uh, with, with Cynthia, we talked about energy efficiency in your home. You know, if you own your home, that's something you can do right now. Like you said, changing to electrification is something you can do today uh, to make a real impact. So this is another thing you can do uh, today to make a real impact. Um, yeah. Thank you, Ravi. Thanks for coming on. Lucas, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, I'm open. It's just Ravi at Join Atmos. I mean, my name combination is unique in the world. So if you Google me, Ravi Mickelson, you will find exactly me. No other, <laughs> no other name likenesses. Yeah, I was expecting uh, a little different looking person. When I... <laughs> you <laughs> so, got to meet Ravi. I'm like, oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> Ravi is a Sanskrit name. I was born in I was born in India and named by a monk there. And Ravi means the sun. Um, so I always tell people that I was destined to get into clean energy. Well, there you go. <laughs> and Mickelson is a Danish name. My paternal grandfather was adopted by a Danish family. Um, by blood, I'm Croatian, Irish, German, Scottish, a little bit of Swedish in there. So, <laughs> Super cool. All right. Yeah. Thanks so much, Ravi. Lucas, thank and, you so much. Yeah, this has been another awesome episode of Pirates of Clean Tech, and we'll see you next week. Arr! Arr!